Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about conversations and ideas that matter. Uh, today, our guest is Claudine Constant with the ACLU of Connecticut. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I always love to start these uh, conversations, right, with getting some flavor of people, right? We're going to chop it up, get into the issues. But I always like to start with like, what's a hot take, right? Like what's something that is true to you that other people are like, nah, that's not a thing. But you know for a fact that everyone else is wrong and like they don't know what they're talking about. Ooh, I don't understand the flavor of truffle. Truffle oil, truffle fries, truffle anything. I feel like I'm eating dirt. I don't get it. I don't, people go bonkers over it and it just doesn't make sense to me. I think it honestly brings down <laughs> meals. <laughs> I don't get it. I I don't get it either. So maybe there, right? Maybe someone will tell us later that we don't know what we're talking about and that, you know, it's a thing, but Show me a truffle that I'll like. There's really, that's the hill I'm going to stand on. Show me a truffle that I'll like. Until then, I don't get it. I don't want them. <laughs> oh, that, that, is, that is a fire hot take. Uh, <laughs> so you are at the ACLU. What is the ACLU? What do the alphabet letters give us? Yes. So we are, uh, the ACLU stands for the American Civil Liberties Union of Connecticut. Uh, we are the Connecticut chapter of a national organization. There is an ACLU in every state, I believe. Um, so oftentimes you'll hear us refer to ourselves as the ACLU of Connecticut because there is an ACLU of Massachusetts, ACLU of New York, ACLU DC, all of that. Um, we are a historically a civil liberties organization. So think about like your First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fifth Amendment, that kind of stuff. And in the last, yeah, the stuff that doesn't really include Black people at the time of inception, but that's for another time. Um, the fifth? No, it's not. <laughs> but in the last maybe five years or so, as the notion of systemic oppression has become more mainstream and not just within the minds of the people impacted by systemic oppression. Um, certain affiliates have started to understand and move towards a balance of a civil liberties and a civil rights concept. Um, so you'll find, particularly with Connecticut, um, some of our legal cases have more of a civil rights leaning and also civil liberties leaning, but more of a civil rights leaning. And a lot of our policy work, so I'm in the public policy department, um, a lot of our policy work is really reflective of um, civil rights and making sure people aren't systematically oppressed. 
now that 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 is an important work um so that is in in, in general aclu um you know i know y'all are working on banning uh, of police deceptive interrogation tactics uh for minors and so can you talk us through kind of how y'all decided, hey, we're going to pick up this issue and, you know, is it an issue? I think it is. I don't know, but like, tell us. Sure. So uh, we are working on the bill that has been proposed this year around banning deceptive or coercive interrogation practices is called uh, Senate Bill 1071. Uh, an act concerning deceptive or interrogation or coercive interrogation practices. So we were approached by the Innocence Project, which is a national organization that predominantly works towards freeing people who have been wrongfully incarcerated and have spent decades of their lives incarcerated for crimes that they actually didn't commit. What the Innocence Project has found nationally and also here in Connecticut is that the prime source of why folks are incarcerated wrongfully, one of the major pieces of that is because of uh, the way a confession was collected when people are being interrogated by the police. So the terms deceptive or coercive interrogations really leans into the tactics that police are using to get people to confess to a crime they may or may not have committed. We have seven instances of children in Connecticut um, within the last 10 to 20 years or so, which is when DNA and all of that evidence really started becoming um, popularized in the criminal legal system of kids under 18 years old falsely confessing to horrendous and horrific crimes that they actually didn't commit, where they end up spending 5, 10, 15, 20 years of their lives being locked up. And so what happens is now that, um, you know, technology has advanced as much as it has in the last 10, 15, 20 years, DNA evidence comes up showing that what cops say um, the kid has been linked to the scene of the crime is actually not true. So Senate Bill 1071 aims to eliminate that practice for police, but also make sure that if by chance a false confession is collected from a child and submitted to the court, the court has an opportunity to dismiss that confession and not include it in the evidence in the trial of which the child is a part of. So that's, it's a wonky tonk bill, but it is completely necessary because in Connecticut and nationally, we find particularly black and brown youth are the targets, black and brown communities are the targets of over-policing and often get caught in the crosshairs of a criminal record um, and a lifetime of incarceration. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, with our guest, Ani Kostin. Um, we were just talking about um, the, you know, how there are people here in our own state, right? And we see examples of this all across the country who are juveniles who, right, admit to crimes that a lot of them, right, 
later on, you have the Innocence Project that shows uh, that shows that uh, these people did not commit these crimes. Um, and so, you know, how how has the reception been so far up in the legislature about this concept and idea? So this is the second year that we are trying to run this bill. Um, it died, it made it out of, the, so there are multiple parts in the legislative process, right? So first the bill has to be introduced to a specific committee. Then the bill needs to be passed out of the committee. And depending on who the champion of the bill is, it either goes to the Senate chamber or the House chamber. Because the champion for this bill last year and this year is Senator Gary Winfield, it becomes a Senate bill bill, <laughs> which is why we're calling it Senate Bill 1071. So passes out of the committee, goes on to its respective chamber, and then it needs to move on to the next chamber before it goes on to the governor's desk to be signed into law. Last year, it made it out of the Judiciary Committee made it out of the Senate chamber, but then died in the House, particularly for a few reasons. The clock ran out, but also the defensive reception to the bill uh, stemmed a lot from uh, police officers, the police chief's union uh, primarily, and uh, the, the Division of Criminal Justice primarily making the argument that this is a tactic that they need to use in order to solve crimes. Uh, that's the argument we heard last year. This year, folks are still saying the same thing, to be honest. Uh, we've got a little bit more traction with the, the Division of Criminal Justice, um, but and the Police Chiefs Union seems to be wanting to work a little bit on this too, but people are still sticking to that talking point that police officers need this tactic in order to solve crimes. And our main point is, no, you don't, especially when it's children. If you think about the nature of children or back to your childhood, when your parent and or guardian was trying to figure out what you did and if you did something, imagine how it feels when an adult is really pushing you to confess to something and either you just want to get this process over with and you say, yeah, I did it, or you defend, 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 defend until you ultimately end up confessing where the outcome or the blowback of fighting for <laughs> your, your, your rights, right? Um, fighting to be seen as telling the truth ends up being a lot more harsh instead of you just giving in. And so what we're trying to convince the legislature and the public is that police actually, if police are actually doing their jobs of investigating crimes, putting pieces together um, that lead them to an arrest, uh, they shouldn't have to use deceptive or harmful uh, practices to get a person to commit to the crime. No, I, 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 I totally agree I, I i know that one third i know that one third of uh um uh, murders go unsolved right uh uh and, and so for those who, who may not know what do these deceptive tactics look like like what can they be is it true um that food drink medical attention can be withheld Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> Food, drink, medical attention, bathroom breaks. Um, you can threaten to use physical force against a person. Uh, you can threaten a person with punishment, such as how long they'll go to prison. You can threaten the person with punishment on their families. So if you don't confess to this crime, we're gonna come after your mom and it'll be even worse for your family. Um, you can also, so, so that's deception, right? Straight up lying about things that you cannot control. Another coercive deceptive tactic is kind of on the side of leniency, right? And saying, if you just confess, you'll be able, we'll make sure that you don't go to, you don't get locked up in prison for a long time, or, you know, we'll make sure you get off with a plea bargain. We'll make sure you get off with da 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 when police officers actually cannot promise that because they are not the prosecutors or the state's attorneys. So those are some of the tactics. Again, think about what it means to be a kid stuck in a room with an adult who you know has a gun, has tasers, has all of this power over you, telling you that if you don't confess to a crime, you likely didn't do. All of this bad stuff is going to happen. Think about what that feels like. Mm. No, I, I, you know, um, and I know I, Justin, I know, I know, you know, cause yeah, I know. But, but, you know, we, 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 we've seen many, uh, individuals who recant stories and, and tell about how, uh, they felt, uh, uh, in, in such situations. Um, what is the, you know, you mentioned the state's attorney. You mentioned prosecutors, right? Um, what is the state's attorney and how does said state's attorney become state's attorney? Oof. So <laughs> state's attorneys are, okay, so think about a pyramid, right? We've got our chief state's, state's attorney who's like, <laughs> not a scheme, but also. <laughs> We've got the chief state's attorney who's like the 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 top, right? The person that is in charge administratively for the division of criminal justice about, you know, the budget and onboarding and what the department policies and all of that looks like. Typically, they're prosecutors that have been um, in the line of work for a long time. Chief state's attorneys are appointed to their position, which means in a lot of Connecticut is one of the few states, I think one of five or seven, don't quote me on that number, we are one of the handful of states that only appoints our chief state's attorney and our state's attorneys, right? So that means there are no elections. The public doesn't really have an input um, on who the top prosecutors and then who the top 13 prosecutors are in the state of Connecticut. So that's the chief state's attorney. Then we've got 13 state's attorneys who are responsible for the 13 judicial districts in Connecticut. The judicial districts aren't drawn, are, I can't say, think about it in terms of like the regions of Connecticut, like Hartford County, Litchfield County, Torrington, et cetera, et cetera. They're kind of, they kind of overlap in terms of our regional, our regions in the state. Um, but there are 13 judicial districts that are responsible for a number of towns and basically the criminal legal, all the happenings around the criminal legal system in that judicial district. 
So they're monitoring the courts, they're monitoring who is coming in, who is receiving a plea, whose case is being nollied, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The 13 states attorneys are also only appointed and serve eight year terms, eight years in that position of head of the one of the 13 judicial districts with no meaningful check-ins with any kind of supervision. I'll stop there because state state's attorneys get me in my bag. So, <laughs> for those of y'all who are just joining us, you are listening to Just in Time Conversations, WNHHFM one hundred three point five. I'm your host Justin Farmer with Claudine Uh talking about state's attorneys. So, we're one of a handful of states, not in the majority of the fifty states that. <laughs> has appointed a state's attorney, chief state's attorney. And that is a position that basically that person is there for a decade. Yep. Chief state's attorneys serve five years. State's attorneys serve eight years. Okay. So <laughs> so right now the the body that essentially appoints uh chief the chief state's attorney and the state's attorneys um is called the criminal justice commission uh which is made up of judges and prosecutors from around with decorated careers from Connecticut right uh so essentially the process for a state's attorney is that bef- the process for a state's attorney is essentially every 8 years they go before the criminal justice commission talk about what they did in their district. Maybe there is someone else applying for the position of state's attorney. Usually it's an internal um, hire. Uh, And they talk about what they did in their judicial districts. The Criminal Justice Commission talks about it amongst themselves. And then a person is appointed to serve for eight years. And prosecutors are the most, one of the most powerful actors in the state of Connecticut, in the state of Connecticut, because every day they're making decisions about whether or not someone is going to carry the baggage and the the collateral consequence of living with a criminal record. Mm. No, I, I, and so there's no lay people or no people who justice impacted that are part of this board? There is one person uh, that, so the smart justice, the smart justice leaders and the smart justice program that the ACLU of Connecticut has been working with since 2018, which is a group of folks currently living with a criminal record in Connecticut that are committed to fighting to make sure that our state sees them as people too, because once a person has done their time, paid their debts to society, they return home and have to restart their lives. People are people are people are people. Right. So they advocated to make sure that a justice impacted person, uh, Dwayne Betts, uh, made it on to the Criminal Justice Commission because a justice impacted voice needed to be heard about the decisions that prosecutors uh, and and state's attorneys and the chief state's attorneys had on people's lives. So there's one person. Out of how many people? Nine, I think. Wow. Yeah. I. Okay, well, so the state's attorney, they get to make decisions. Um, This board appoints them. Who holds the state's attorney accountable? 
technically, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> technically, nobody. Um, so the Criminal Justice Commission is charged with the duty of hiring, firing, and stepping in when a state's attorney has gone out of line. But currently in Connecticut state statute, there is no mandate for a state's attorney to appear before the Criminal Justice Commission outside of their eight-year reappointment hearing. So they serve eight-year terms with no meaningful guidance, no meaningful supervision, no meaningful check-in, which means in our 13 judicial districts, it is a black box of what is happening for those eight years that a state's attorney is appointed in that term. Smart Justice has been working for the past several years to address that issue. In 2019, we were able to pass a bipartisan bill uh, called, um, which is Public Act 1959, and it was called an act concerning the increase in fairness and transparency in Connecticut which really was around data collection because you can't make any meaningful decisions about how a person is doing or how things are going anywhere if you actually don't have facts and figures in front of you. So that bill charged each judicial district with collecting information about who is coming through their courts, race, gender, uh, socioeconomic status, which really is showing since 2019 is really showing that black and brown people continue to be disproportionately impacted by policing in our state, right? Now, our prosecutorial accountability bill is looking to put that data to use and make have the uh, state's attorneys come before the Criminal Justice Commission every year to talk about what's going on in their judicial district. Yeah, a, a couple of episodes ago, we had uh, Steve Kennedy uh, from People's Priority uh, Project talking about, um, you know, who's on the bench and what the, does the bench look like? Mm -hmm. um, and so in terms of the, the prosecutors, almost all of them were formerly prosecutors before they yes. come to this role. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, so how, how, how do, why should everyday people be concerned, right, about this, uh, uh, from my understanding and perspective, what you're saying is that these state's attorneys don't have to check in at all, and if they were asked to check in, there's no mandate that makes them. So they could literally say, I don't want to, and tell the commission to kick rocks until however long their term ends. Okay, so why, I'm concerned, but why should everyday people be concerned? And then what, what could accountability look like? That's a great question. Um, and so, from our perspective, and if, again, you think back to interlocking systems of oppression or just the bill I was talking about prior to this, the deceptive interrogation practices bill, right? Police and prosecutors, police and state's attorneys, those offices work hand in hand. Police can't have a case unless they're able to turn it over to prosecutors to do what they do in the courts, right? 
If we don't have an effective, transparent, open system to understand the tactics that police are using that then feed into the tactics that prosecutors and state's attorneys are using to lock people up, essentially, we'll never get a handle on mass incarceration in our state. Yes, we have seen the numbers dwindle over time. Yes, but people are still, particularly black and brown communities, are still disproportionately entering Connecticut's prisons and jails. We need state's attorneys to recognize that they play a major role in mass incarceration, whether their philosophies tell them they do or they don't. They play a major role in mass incarceration and Opening up the Pandora's box that is the division of criminal justice only allows everybody to meaningfully understand how their jobs impact us every day. I know, I know people living with a criminal record that are near and dear to my heart. You may know people that are living with a criminal record that are near and dear to your heart. It's only fair that we try to work to make Connecticut more safe uh, and transparent for everybody here. Yeah, and I, I I remember Representative Porter once saying that there are, I think it was 327 collateral consequences of a fed, uh, felony charge. So yes. someone goes, does their time, comes back, and it's, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't yes. do this, you can't do that, um, to which, you know, uh, people make mistakes, and so there needs to be a, a system that has equilibrium. Um, you know, it was only a couple of years ago that we heard massive outcry from people uh, about George Floyd, uh, and, and you know, people asking for divestment of funds from police, right? To uh, other ways of figuring out uh, uh, how to have a, a more equitable justice system. Um, you know, what what are some things that, in terms of ACLU, has looked at to be alternatives to, you know, where we put our money, where our mouth isn't it? Um. Yeah. So. <laughs> I often like to think that a state's budget is a declaration of their values, right? A municipality's budget is a declaration of our values. And what we have seen over time and what we're constantly at threat of is more money being poured into police and policing systems rather than preventative systems that actually help people thrive and help them avoid coming into contact with police, right? So from the start, we, our state should be prioritizing investments in education, actual affordable housing, making sure people can afford to pay rent. So having jobs that pay them well, health, accessible healthcare, food that's affordable, walkable communities, communities where people actually want to live and where they're not forced to move to other places that don't even want them there. <laughs> it's a hefty investment up front 
But to go back to what you said about the collateral consequences and what people end up paying for for the rest of their lives, what they end up paying for, what their families end up paying for, what the generations after them end up paying for is a person who made a decision or made a mistake, probably because money was tight and they got to do what they got to do to make sure that ends meet. They get caught up in the system. They no longer can have access to quality housing. They have no longer have access to higher education. They no longer have access to, uh, uh, well, we passed a bill last year to change that, but licensure so they could become social workers to make sure people don't make the same mistakes that they did, right? So many doors close in front of you once you walk out of that courthouse or the prisons and jails with a criminal record. Investing in the systems that allow people to thrive, things for kids to do after school. I was recently having a conversation with a friend um, who has kids who are hitting 16, 18, and 20 years old. And they were trying to figure out like, my daughter wants to celebrate their birthday, but like, I actually don't know where, like what's available to an 18 year old to go to that's not a bar and isn't like a youth rec center. What is available for people between the ages of 17 and 21 to do after school, after work, on the weekends? We're not investing in creating space where children can actually thrive and cultivate themselves. And instead we continue to invest in police. Now, thank you. For those of y'all who are joining us, who are listening to Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer. Our guest, Claudine Cosnett of ACLU Connecticut. Um, you know, I, just what you 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 were mentioning, um, I always think of dirt bikes, right? Everyone gets upset about dirt bikes. Everyone's just like, why are people riding in places where there shouldn't be it's dirt so bikes? Cool. And I'm like, okay, I cannot name one major city that has a dirt bike park. Not one, right? And we all, because it's easy to say, don't do that. But I almost never see, you know, us building that infrastructure that you're talking about. What's the outlet, right? Like you you can't tell what's the outlet where so what do we want them to do right um yeah yeah skate parks are hard to come by the one in hartford is constantly being a you know threatened to be heaven skate park which is a beautiful beautiful place if you're ever able to go and check it out but like it's constantly at threat of being like overtaken by development because but that's where all the kids go to hang out summertime's coming that's that's where they go Good trouble. <laughs> what are some trends that um, the ACLU has seen uh, concerning policing uh, and or prisons that, you know, have shown alarms where y'all have, you know, started to collect data over the years on different things and have any things popped out where you've gone? We so, should look at this again. Huh? Yeah, yes. So there, 
there are a couple of things, and this is more dipping into like the legal, the legal department and the work that they're doing. But I want to give a shout out to our legal department because for the last several years, they have been working on a project called Project Flashlight, which is really a project meant to shine a light in the dark, 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 dark place of policing and policing activities and what where our money is in, where our state is investing money into the activities of police, right? So really paying attention to suits and settlements, how often municipalities are settling with individual police officers because of poor behavior, uh, uh, the collective bargaining agreement agreement. So what, um, which, so what cities are committing to pay for to cover, or the state is committing to pay for or cover, um, for police like driving gloves and you know meal stipends and different things like that. Um, from a statewide perspective, really continuing to push this narrative of training, 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 more training, more body cams, more of this stuff that's continuing to prove that we're not getting at the heart of the matter, which is police shouldn't be in very specific arenas. It should be other people that are showing up to very specific things. Um, uh, what else? legislatively thinking about, so you mentioned the police accountability bill that passed in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd and the uprisings of so many activists and organizers and community people that just demanded better from our state. Uh, we're now seeing threats of constantly going back to revise the police accountability bill to water it down um, when it wasn't even it was a step, it was like the floor, not the ceiling. And mm -hmm. we constantly see opposition trying to go back and water down things around what it means for use of force uh, and different things like that. So it's important, particularly as my in my role as the policy, the policy director here is to keep a, a pulse on some of those small threats that can really fly under the radar because there are so many other things that are on fire. But if you're not paying attention to what's happening in the Judiciary Committee around rollbacks to very, very basic things, we can see the, we Black and Brown communities see the impact of that almost immediately. It, it was a couple of weeks ago that uh, uh, we had Barbara Fair talk about the ombudsman and uh, how, you know, the ombudsman was supposed to be picked by this committee and everybody was excited about this committee and then they put two COs on it um to which right like how do you have correction officers to correct what's going on with the correction officers police can't police themselves and we keep trying to find solutions where in which police are policing themselves and we can shout it from the mountaintops that this is not the way and yeah, I, uh, I, I guess one question I want to ask is, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of this, this bill uh, for supporting, right, uh, stripping away the ability to, uh, you know, have these tactics, what can people do? How can people support what? You know, where can people find that information? 
Yeah. So a couple of ways. Um, if you go to our website, aclucc.org and go to issues, you'll find our uh, toolbox for SB 1071, which has a bunch of information about what the bill does, our fact sheet, and ways to get in touch with your legislator. In terms of where the bill is at in the legislative process right now, we're basically at the last week of public hearings. So the bill had its public hearing last week. Now we're at the point where the committee has to vote to get it out of committee so it can then go on to the Senate floor because it's a Senate bill uh, for Senator Winfield to be able to defend it and get it out of the Senate, right? Um, so now we're at the point where we're not only focusing on Judiciary Committee members, we're focusing on all legislators because all legislators need to hear how critical and important this bill is for the state of Connecticut. So look up who your legislator is using the CGA website uh, find out who your person is and just write them an email and say, hey, Representative Porter for thinking about New Haven, right? Represent <laughs> hey, rep dear Representative Porter, my name is so-and-so, and I just wanted to express my support and my concern for SB 1071, an act concerning deceptive interrogation or coercive practices. Please continue to vote in favor of this bill. We know Rep. Porter is in favor of this bill, but please continue to this, support this bill and tell your colleagues that they should support it too. Send, as simple as that. Now, I I, I thank you. Uh, is there any other things that you wanna mention, talk about? Do the same for SB 1070, an act concerning prosecutorial accountability because they are intrinsically linked uh, and both focus on the front end of the criminal legal system, which is really stopping people from entering Connecticut's prisons and jails in the first place. No, I, I definitely, definitely, definitely appreciate you, appreciate uh, uh, your time. Um, to those of, uh, of y'all who joined us today, thank you uh, for joining us on Just In Time Conversations, WNHHFM. Uh, thank you to our, our, our guests, Claudia and Constant. Uh, until next time, let us continue to plant the seeds of change so we can grow together. Thank you, Justin. Hey. Where the East Coast at? Where the West Coast at? Where the East Coast at? <laughs>